I trust that God's word has been a blessing to you as we have verse by verse gone through 1 Timothy. These next three verses we're going to cover in 1 Timothy have been a real challenge to me this, this last week as far as priorities go in my own life. And I'm going to do something different this morning. I'm going to start in a a passage of Scripture that I, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time considering this man's life. In particular, the way that he responds to adversity. So turn with me to Job. Job chapter 1. I want to start with the life of Job this morning as I frame in for us this question that I've posed to us all this morning. In the title of this sermon, what are you holding on to? How tightly do you hold on to your stuff? That's the question this morning. How tightly did Job hold on to his stuff, to his worldly possessions, even to his own children? Job's life is a challenge to me. I have a hard time picturing myself responding the way that Job responds, which is a clear indication that there are things that I just hold on to far too tight. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, verse 1. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Notice here that we are talking about a man who is very, very, very wealthy. And yet that's not all that's told to us about Job. He was also very godly. And we, we know the story, at least at least I would think we know the story of what happens next, right? That the Satan, the enemy of God, appears before the throne. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Remember, these aren't stories someone made up. These are real people. These are real spirits, angels. Satan is real. Job was a real historical figure who had real sheep, real children. This is our real God speaking to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? Where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Notice he's not omnipresent like God. He is not like God. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him, which actually chapter two he does. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So all of his his sheep, his oxen, and all the servants with them gone, except for the two that had come and escaped. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That looks like all of his worldly possessions except for maybe his home. And yet we're not done. Verse 18, while he was still speaking... Another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people. And they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then look at Job's response. One of the most challenging verses in Scripture. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and he worshipped. Is that how you would have responded? How tightly do you hold on your stuff? Would your response be worship? And then as if we truly didn't grasp what his perspective was, he clearly gives it to us. Verse 21, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. It's exactly what we've seen in 1 Timothy. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if verse 22 wasn't in there as well, I, I, I still might think this is just lip service. Mouse tassel, as they say in Papua New Guinea. Just something that he's just just saying with his lips, but he doesn't really believe it with his heart. But look at what 22 says. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. How tightly was Job holding on to all that he had? I'm sure it was significant and important to him, But it wasn't the end all for Job, for Job had the understanding that everything that he had was from God and belonged to God. And ultimately, what is most important to Job is the fact that he sees this coming from his heavenly father. Now, just to frame in 
Job's entire life. Turn to the last chapter of the book of Job. Job 42. We're kind of doing the Cliff Notes version of the book of Job this morning. Looking at the beginning chapter and the last chapter. Recognizing that there was a whole lot that happened in between. And in the life of Job, just as there is a whole lot that happens between when we are born and when we die. And how you live in between, and particularly what you do with Jesus Christ, is of utmost significance. For it changes everything about your eternal destiny. Look at verses 10 to 17. You see, the Lord didn't have to end Job's life like this. He didn't have to answer. He could have kept Job the way that he was. And what we see here again is God's grace. Even as you're holding on to all your stuff so tightly, do you see God's grace in that which you are holding so tightly onto? The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread and with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, twice as much as he started with, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. That is God's grace. And he had seven sons and three daughters. That doesn't mean that they replaced the ones that he had lost. Do you think Job's heart still didn't bleed and break for those who had been lost? They weren't resurrected. But in this, God is gracious. Why? Because now Job has someone to pass on his inheritance to. And he named them, speaking of the, the girls, the first Jemima and the second Kezia and the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. My question again for us all this morning is this. What are you holding on to? As you consider your life and all that you have and all that you have amassed and, and all the treasure, so to speak, how, how tightly are you holding on to that? Where do you compare with Job? How do you store up treasures in heaven instead of on this earth? How do you live for the eternal? How do you let go of this tight grasp that we put on that which we consider to be so important? That's where, Tim, that's where Paul goes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In, in these three short verses. Which is kind of strange that he goes back to riches, that he goes back to wealth, because he's already talked about it. Just several weeks ago, we, we, we went through the the foolishness of loving money too much and how destructive it is and how it will ruin you and how it will destroy you. And yet instead of leaving it there, he now comes back to this idea of riches. And it's as if he's saying, okay, you know what? I recognize there's some in this body that are rich 
And it could be that the rest of the body that is now looking at those that are rich might say, well, they must love money. So they must have to give it all away. And yet that isn't what Paul is going to say. Paul's going to reveal to us that that there are some that are just blessed by God and they then have a responsibility of wise stewardship with what the Lord has given them. So this is what Paul says. Right after this doxology that, that, that he just couldn't help but getting into, right? He says this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 to 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Let me pray for us. I don't want any of us this morning to miss what the Lord has for us from his word. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that distract us. So many good things that distract us. We, we live in the land of plenty. We are so blessed. We are blessed beyond the blessing of, of so many others in our material wealth, Lord, and all that you have given us, the homes that we live in, the cars that we drive, the clothing that we wear. They're all testimonies of your goodness and your grace to us. And yet, Lord, these verses reveal to us that there is a way for us to, to not grasp onto that which is life indeed that which is true life. I I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning through your word as only you can. Not that I would speak, but that you would speak, that you would use your word to drill down deep into our hearts to reveal to us whether or not we're holding on too tightly to what you've given us so that we might have life, real life, eternal life in you, and that we might live that life as a reality right here, right now, before you return or before you take us, that we would walk with you as as Job walked with you, that we would learn the lessons that you have for us and that we would hold loosely to wealth and that we would hold tightly onto you that we might gain the life that you have for us, Lord. So guide our time now as only your presence can do. Let the Holy Spirit be our teacher, our guide. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So why does Paul go here? Paul goes here because Ephesus was rich. Because there were many in Ephesus that were rich. That this, this was a, a city that was compared to Rome. That this was a city where lots of trade and commerce and, and businesses happened. And so as a result, it was a place where you could make lots of money. And so as Paul is wrapping up his letter to his young son in the faith, encouraging him 
encouraging the whole church, we, we, we're reminded of the purpose of why Paul wrote Timothy, 1 Timothy, back in chapter 3, verse 15. All of this comes through this grid. Why is he now talking about the rich? What, is, what does our riches have to do with Christ's church? It has everything to do with Christ's church. Look at what he says, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He's saying, please, 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 God has blessed you with so many resources. I want you, Timothy, to let everyone know, and you as well, that you use these resources for the glory of God and the good of others. That is where he's going to go. He's, he's talked to all sorts of other people, has he not? We, we've seen him single out people throughout this first letter. He starts first talking to Timothy. Hey, stay in Ephesus and, and, and do the work of a pastor, Timothy. This church is in trouble. I want you to stand. And I want you to refute those false teachers. And then he talks to the false teachers. Hey, stop talking. Stop teaching. Stop what you're doing. And then he talks to the church. And he talks to men generally first. And he says, men, be men of prayer. Commit yourselves to prayer. And you ladies, be careful how you dress. And then he, then he goes on and he, and he speaks to the leaders of Christ's church, making sure that they would know exactly what, what the qualifications were, what the kind of men were that God wanted to be the ones that were the leaders in his church. And then he goes on to widows. And he's hit all these different aspects and, and how we're a family and how we're supposed to relate with one another. And then from there, then he goes on to money. He goes to the love of money. And he lets us know just, just what a trap that is to fall in. But he's not finished talking about money. Instead of now talking to those who love money, he's talking to those who have money. To those who have riches. And while I I don't want to embarrass us us all this morning, I I want to put this front and center. We are rich in America. If, If I were to hand out a piece of paper and I had each one of you mark down how many shirts you have, how many shorts you have, how many socks you have, how many shoes you have, how many mattresses you have in your home, and and we just stop there. And then I was to compare that with me asking those in the village that we lived in for nearly 20 years, what do you have? You would see just how wealthy we are. Exponentially wealthy. And in that is God's grace to us. And notice that as, that as Paul goes there, he doesn't condemn them for being rich. He doesn't take them back to Acts the beginning to the church and says, hey, everybody shared everything, so all you that are rich, just pull your money into the middle and we're all just going to be equal. No, he, he recognizes that there's diversity in the body of Christ. And what he's saying is, those of you who have been blessed, there's a stewardship issue that then is now yours. And what are you doing with this money and all of these riches and this wealth that the Lord has blessed you with? That is the question. And that is what we must consider. The the question the Lord presents us here today in these verses is, what are you holding on to? Are you holding on to your money and your possessions, making them your life? 
Or are you holding on to what is real life? Which is where the Apostle Paul goes, which is where we will go. So in these three short verses this morning, we're going to see a powerful life lesson given to us from the Lord. Two proper perspectives on wealth that keeps us from holding on to it too tightly. Two proper perspectives. Just just two little perspectives. But man, if we grasp a hold of these and we implement these and we live these out, this will help us to be able to hold on to that which is life indeed instead of that which is fleeting. That which we think will bring us contentment, that which we think will bring us security, and so we hold on to it so, so tightly. But you know what we find in the end? It's sand. And it just disappears out of our hands. And, and that is the warning that the Apostle Paul is, is giving the church in Ephesus. That he's given to, giving to young Timothy. And what are these two things? The right attitude and the right actions. We could break these verses into that. The right attitude, the right actions. And we see the right attitude first in verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the right attitude. What is the right attitude? To fix your hope in God, not in other things. What are the other things? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. What is that? Not to fix your hope in yourself. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Not to fix your hope on riches, in riches. But notice where he starts. It doesn't make sense to me, at least originally. I, I would have put don't, put, don't put all of your hope in the uncertainty of riches. That would have been first. That's what I would have wanted to emphasize. But, but Paul, he's much wiser than I am. And he recognizes, no, you know, you know where I need to go first? Is I need to go to Jason's heart. I need to go to Jason's mindset. I need to go to Jason's understanding that all of this is because of me. Because that is the way that we think. That's why he goes to this idea of being conceited first. That we're not to trust what? In our own strength. In our own will. In our own determination. Because what we end up doing is we think that all that we have is because of who we are. Don't we do that? Oh, it's the schooling that you went through. Oh, oh, oh no, it's, it's, it's this training that you got. Oh, it's the brilliant mind that you have just fostered. Or it's just your upbringing. It's, it's this desire that you have to just amass this. And so you went after what you wanted and that's what you got. And what is it? It's all about you. That's what being conceited is. And don't we see this in our culture? Who are the most conceited people you know of? They're, they're the ones that are the rich and famous. It's all about them. And what do they do? They look down upon anyone else. And what we end up doing is buying into this lie that our security and our contentment is all based upon what we have, what we own, our stuff. And yet what God's word is telling us is the complete opposite that that's not where our security lies. That's not where our contentment is. Write this down. Our security is not in what we own. 
Our security is in whose we are. That's the perspective that Paul is giving. This is the mindset that we should have. That we should recognize all that we have is because God has been so gracious. Which one of us chose to be born here in this country or wherever you were born then brought to this country as opposed to Papua New Guinea in a small little tribe like where we lived? None of us did. And all that we have is God's wonderful grace evident in how much we have. But you know what we do? We, we don't think about that. Even as we're grasping, holding on to it with all that, that we're worth, we still think that somehow we are the ones that attained it, that we got it. And so it's ours. And God is saying, no, it's not yours. Not even your children are yours, Jason. Your children are a gift on loan from me. What are you going to do with them? Our security is not in what we own, but in whose we are. Turn with me to Matthew. Jesus says the same thing. It's not just about what, what we own, but it's about our hearts and how our heartstrings wrap around that which we own, those things that we own, those things that become so important to us. And it's for this reason that Jesus says what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's letting us all know, be careful. Be careful what you're holding on to. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. We usually stop at at 21, but I want to go on to reveal to us just how significant our hearts are. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Meaning your eye is pure. Your eye is in alignment with what God wants you to be desiring. What you to be holding on to. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then darkness, the light that is in you is darkness. And how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What is Jesus saying? I think Paul is following suit on exactly what Jesus is saying. He's letting us know that you can't hold on to God with the one hand and then hold on to all of your material possessions and, and, and your riches with the other hand. Why? Because your possessions, they, 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 they gravitate over to you wanting to hold it with two hands. You can't do one or the other. And God wants you fully devoted to Him. And what money does in the pursuit of money and all of our possessions is it pulls us away. And it it becomes what becomes the most significant, important thing to us. That's why we hold on to it so tightly. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, what rules your heart rules you. What rules your heart rules you. Is, Is your money ruling you? That's what happens at times when when we just hold on to it far too tightly. 
So what do we need to do? How, how do you build for that which is eternal? We have the proper attitude. And then we see, look at the last half of verse 17. Back to First Timothy, chapter 6. We don't place all of our confidence, all of our hope in riches. And the uncertainty of riches is how Paul defines this aspect of riches. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited and not to what? Fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Why does he call them uncertain? Because they disappear. Because they don't last. Because you, not only can you not take them into the next life, but so oftentimes they disappear before you're ready for them to disappear. That they are fleeting. Turn with me to Proverbs. This, this verse is just so challenging. Proverbs chapter 23. Verses 4 to 5. This is why we need to be careful about holding on to our our riches too tightly. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. What does it do? It it disappears from you. It doesn't give you that contentment. What is he really speaking of? He's speaking of security. We think that, that we are going to gain all this security from our wealth, but the Word of God says, no, that isn't where security comes. Because you don't know if you're going to have this tomorrow, but you know who you will have tomorrow? You will have Jesus Christ. If you believe and trust in Him. That is where our security is. That is why for me to to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That is why I can can hold on to, to whatever I have loosely because I know that I've already gained eternal life. That which is so much better. That that is where contentment, that is where security goes. And so as a result, we depend upon God, not upon our wealth, not upon our riches. Look at the end of verse 17. This is such a great truth, but it is so difficult to live this out on a daily basis. Much easier when I was in the jungles of Papua New Guinea and and seeing how the people lived so meagerly to recognize that all that I have comes from God. But here, now, it is so difficult to do that. Why? Because I compare myself with everybody else. I say, man, we don't have much. As I get in my own car, my wife has her car, Look at verse 17. So who are we to hope in? Not in the uncertainty of riches, not in yourself, but in God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Notice how he supplies it. He doesn't supply it grudgingly. He doesn't supply it kind of sparingly. Oh, I'm just going to give you a little bit. No, he, he does it richly in abundance. That's how great our God is and how marvelous His grace is. But don't think when when it says, oh, all things to enjoy, that God is some cosmic genie in a bottle 
That somehow when, when you believe, now you can just rub it whenever you want, and God will give you whatever you want. We, we know from earlier in verse 8, that what should we be content with? We should be content with food and covering. The essentials. Not whatever your want is, but whatever your need is. But, but can we all agree this morning that what we have is far beyond what is essential to us? That God has blessed us so much. So first, what do we need to do? We need to have the proper attitude about our wealth. We need to hold it loosely. Recognizing that it's come from God and that it is not our security. The Lord Jesus Christ is and our relationship with him is. And second, we see where this kind of attitude takes us. And this too is equally challenging. At least for me, maybe you all do this well. And this just comes naturally to you. This comes completely unnatural to me. And remember, this is in the context of our wealth, in the context of our riches, that this idea is the reason why God gives you all that he gives you isn't for you. It is for him and for others. It is to be a springboard, a funnel to give to what? To others. This is how he says it. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. The right actions. What are the right actions? That which will bring about the treasure of a good foundation. And isn't that that what we all want? We We don't want to amass all the treasure that we can here on this earth so that it stays here. We we want to live for that which is eternal. And so how do we do that? Look at verse 19 and look at what Paul says, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That, that word literally means to keep safe that which is of great value. But it can also mean to amass a huge amount of treasure. It's the idea of with whatever God gives you, yes, go ahead and pay for the things that you need to pay for, that which is essential, but above that and beyond that, give. And as you do that, you will be amassing this treasure in heaven. I often wonder, of all the years that we spent in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, if when I stand before the Lord, there's going to be some, some older widow woman who chose to give us a hundred dollars a month all the years that we were on the field and she is going to receive a much greater reward from the lord than what i did because jason struggles with his flesh so much and because i hold on to my stuff so much and she just has open hands and says i don't have much but whatever i have i'm giving to you the right actions store up eternal treasure Notice the emphasis here isn't on the receiver. The emphasis is on the giver. But how do you do that? How do you store up treasures for the future, store up treasures for heaven? He tells us. He tells us three times basically the same thing. He says to do good, to be rich in good works, and then he says to be generous and ready to share. He's basically making it more clear every time. He starts off generally, then he's getting more and more specific. 
First, he says, what do you do with all that God gives you? You do good. That, that means that you do things that are benefiting others. Again, the focus is off of ourselves and off of what we hold and onto, okay, Lord, who do you want me to bless with this? And then he says, be rich in good works. Notice he, he uses the terminology of being rich, but he's not using it in terms of material wealth now. He's saying use it in the way that you can then work for the Lord. Be a blessing to others. Use your money to bless others, to give and to give and to give. Give to those in need. Give to the church. Yes, give to missions. Give to, how about that homeless guy that you pass every day on your way to work? And you go, no, I know he's, he, he's got a beamer. And he's cranking in a couple grand each, each month just by doing this. No, you leave that in the Lord's hands. And, and if the Lord convicts you and says, give to this guy, you give to that guy. You don't even look at your hands. You trust the Lord and where that's going. You do the same thing in church. You trust that the Lord is going to then use that money for his purpose. But you give. And you commit yourself to giving. Why? Because as you do that, you know what happens? You're not holding on to it so tightly. The third aspect is probably the most challenging for me, and this is being generous, being bountiful. Okay, I can give, but, but do I overgive? How many of us overgive? Or how many of us say, what is the absolute minimum of what I can give? And that's what I'm going with. And the rest, I'm going to stick over here. I'm going to let that build. Such a challenge. You know, when we were on the mission field, there, there were times where, where finances were tight. Our support for one reason or, or another just, just, just was down. And at one point, we wanted to come home. And we had to buy tickets. And by that time, the kids were big. So we're talking six tickets to fly all the way from Papua New Guinea through Australia, then back to America, some $8,000 worth of tickets. And we didn't have it. We, we sent out prayer letters. We do everything that missionaries do. With no response. Do you know where, where, where that money came from? It came from the most unlikely source, a single missionary that, that, that was friends with us. Even unknowingly, to us, she heard about this need, and then, and then she blessed us. And the only way we found out about it was I had to do some sort of digging. Because she wanted to do it anonymously. Generous giving. I, I saw this in our tribe. So as, as there was a church that, that came into existence in the middle of nowhere, in the, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, do you know what happened? The Lord got more and more involved in their everyday lives. And as they're reading the scripture, they're like, hey, how come we haven't baptized? Hey, aren't we supposed to be dunked in the water? Hey, aren't we supposed to be giving? Hey, they're giving. What's this collection that, that Paul's taking? How come, how come you haven't told us to do this? I said, I've been waiting. So what does this look like? I said, we don't have money. I said, well, 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 what has God blessed you with? Oh, he's blessed us with food. I said, well, then maybe this looks like you giving back to the Lord food. And they said, okay. So I put a big toad out. And week after week after week, the, the, the people would come. And you know what they'd give? They'd give fish that they had dried that week. 
That's not an easy give. They'd give pig meat. Are you kidding me? That's not an easy give. Much easier to eat all of that just among your family. We're not talking much. They'd give the the nice papayas, the nice pineapples. And then after they'd give, we'd take it back and, and the elders and the deacons and all of us, we'd pray over it. And we'd ask the Lord, reveal to us who needs this. And then it was so cool. Week after week, three or four names would, would come up to us. And there'd be two or three guys that would be like, oh, Messiah, oh, Semedii, Semedii, Messiah. And then we'd, man, this is who it goes to. Well, one day after doing that, I stand up and I'm ready to leave and they're all still sitting. And then, then they start saying something about, give it to him, give it to him, give it to him. But really low with their heads down, like they're shamed. And so I sit back down with them and I go, you guys, Mahakakami. So what are you guys doing? And then they say, ho. And, and one guy hands, hands me a, a bag full of money. The equivalent of 20 kina, which is like 20 American dollars. And you know what they say? They say, hey, we know that you normally, after six months, you fly out of the tribe. And you guys go have like a break with your family. It's been nine months. Why are you still here? We know why you're here, because you don't have any money. And so we're giving you this $20 so that you can fly. Okay, you know how much that costs? It costs $500 for us to fly. So it wasn't about the amount. It was about the generosity, because that was like three years of giving to accumulate just that 20 kina. The, the people didn't get much. And when they did, they, they would give some. It was the natural way for them to respond to God being so gracious to them. Man, I miss that. I miss being around people like that that, that, that. that would challenge me. And please do not take this as a, oh, please, our offering is low. No, this is between you and the Lord. And this church is incredibly gracious. It is something that I've seen over and over and over again. Are you kidding me? With our elder care fund. It is awesome. No, no, I'm speaking more to myself than you. And all of this. Generously give. Can we do that? Can we trust the Lord? By being generous. So we need to have what? The right attitude and the right actions will follow. And if we do this, notice what will be the result, and, and, and this is where we'll, we'll finish our time. Which might be the greatest challenge of everything that is presented in these verses. Whenever you see a so that, you need to stop in Scripture. Because then that is a purpose clause that is letting us know the reason for all of that. And notice what it is. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. What is life indeed? It is real life. It is actual life. It is certain life. It is true life. It is eternal life. It is life with Jesus. But what does Paul mean here? Does he say that through giving and through doing all of these things and having the the right proper attitude that you somehow earn salvation? No, that, that doesn't mesh with the rest of Scripture. Obviously, that isn't what he means. He's talking to people that are saved. So if you are here this morning and you are not saved, please don't think that coming to church is going to buy your ticket to heaven. 
don't think that whatever you do is going to buy you anything as far as an eternal resting place with God. That's why we have a cross behind us. So that we remember every Sunday why we are here. Because it is all about Him. And that is who we are trusting in. And Jesus and Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for His glory alone. And that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. These are people that have already trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. There's no other way to the Father but through Him. Through that cross. And through the one who bled and died upon that cross. Because the cross by itself is nothing. Many, many people died on a cross. But no one died like Jesus did. And came back again. So trust in Him. We're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So what is he saying? He's saying that if you hold money like this, you don't hold on to it tightly, then that is how you will be able to start to experience right here, right now, real life. What's the converse of that? What's the flip side? What's implied? What's actually not stated but there? It's this, that if you hold on to your money and your material wealth too tightly, you are going to miss out on experiencing real life and eternal life right now. That, that is the other side of this. That is, that is why this has been so compelling to me and why I, I couldn't finish up First Timothy without just spending some time on just these three little verses because it is so significant. On top of all of that, consider Ephesus. Ephesus, this church, they were blessed with so much. They've been given so much as far as resources go. And what was Paul's heartbeat for them? That they would be a missionary church. That they would be a sending church. They would be a platform by which all of Asia would be turned for Jesus Christ. What about us? What, what are we doing with the resources that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us as His church? Can we seek the Lord in these things and... and commit ourselves to giving back what the Lord has blessed us with. If Pastor Shane and and the worship team could come up. I I gave us four points to ponder this week, and I would encourage you to go back and look at those throughout the week, but I just want to spend just a couple seconds looking at point one. Because I believe this is a good intro to to the songs that we're going to sing as we close up. And I didn't drive this home too much throughout the sermon, but this is there. And it's, it's this question. Have you bought into the lie that your worth is wrapped up in what you own? Do you somehow imagine that you are perhaps better than those who have little? What is your perspective when you look at a homeless person or consider those less fortunate? Man, may the Lord give us his heart. And in that, may he work in us to such an extent that we're not holding on to our wealth too tightly, but holding on to that 
which is life indeed. Let me pray just to segue and prepare our hearts for responding in song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for giving us voices. We thank you for for giving us folks that have gone before us and and written beautiful songs that we can sing as, as, as an extension of our hearts poured out to you for how good and gracious and loving you are, Lord. We are so blessed. And we want to turn that blessing into a blessing for others. We want to serve you with all of our hearts. We want to love you as you have loved us. We want to give back to you as you have blessed and given us, Lord. So help us to do that. And allow these these songs that we're about to sing to be pleasing to you and may they be accurate representations of our hearts poured out before you in song. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.